0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. From 1971 to 1972, six little black girls disappeared in the D.C. area. The perpetrator of this case, though never identified, was known only as the Freeway Phantom. My name is Sophia Talley and this is True Crime In It. case involves sexual assault and murder so if that's something that you are uncomfortable with then it's okay if you skip this one I'll be here next week with another one just take care of yourself first Carol Denise Spinks was fondly known as Bebe as she was small for her 13 years she was one half of a twin only in seventh grade and loved to play jacks with her twin sister and jump rope But one day on April 25th, 1971, Bebe and her sisters were home while their mother went and visited a relative out of town. And whenever her mother wasn't home, the girls were instructed to stay home and not to open the door for anybody. Well, that night, their older 24-year-old sister was visiting a friend who lived in the apartment across the hall. And she wanted one of her siblings to run an errand for her at the local 7-Eleven, which is a convenience store. Now, none of the sisters wanted to do it. They didn't want to get in trouble with their mother. baby was tired of her sister complaining about this errand needing to be done, so she volunteered to go to the 7-Eleven on her own. Carol, also known as Bebe, was last seen by a 14-year-old girl who was walking from the store with her mother and sister, and she saw Bebe with a bag of groceries while she was on her way home to deliver them to her sister. But Bebe hadn't been seen since. Bebe's family immediately reported her disappearance to the police. Unfortunately, it was 1971. She was a young black girl. And the police told her parents that Bebe just ran away. And her family knew that this wasn't true. She loved her family. She had a good life. Um, She had a second half, her twin sister, and she wasn't going to go anywhere without her. But police did not investigate her case and just assumed she was a runaway. This left the family and the community to search for Bebe themselves. Six days later, on May 1st, Bebe's body was found on the side of the road. She had been strangled, sexually assaulted, and there were cuts on her face. Her nose was bloodied as if it was beaten. First on the scene to where Bebe's body was found was Sergeant Romaine Jenkins. She honestly is a badass, to put it bluntly. She is a black female sergeant who specialized in taking the cases that her male colleagues felt uncomfortable with taking, specifically cases that involved children. And so she was the one who was in charge of the homicide unit at the time. Though police initially thought that Bebe was a runaway, the family was sure that somebody did something to her and that it was only a matter of time until this person repeated this crime, and they weren't wrong. On July 8th, 1971, Delenia Denise Johnson was on her way to work when she was abducted. A witness saw her enter a black car driven by a black male, and after this sighting, she was never seen again. A few days later, an anonymous male caller contacted the police with very specific information about Darlene's death. He knew information that police were unsure how this person would come across on top of knowing where Darlene's body could be found. A few days after this call, about 11 days after Darlene would disappear, her body was found only 15 feet away from where Bebe's body was recovered. Unfortunately, Darlinia's body was there for so long that they couldn't tell what her cause of death was or what even happened to her. But they could tell that she was strangled at one point. Darlinia was found also without her shoes, just like Bebe was. At this point, upon finding Darlinia's body, police realized that Everything that that anonymous caller told them was true, and that he had information in that call that nobody would know unless that person was the murderer. Later that month, on July 27th, 11 year old Brenda Faye Crockett was running an errand to the local supermarket for her mother. It was around 7 p.m., but a couple hours passed by, and Brenda just never returned. Finally, at a, around two hours later after her disappearance, someone called her house. It was Brenda herself. But unfortunately, her seven-year-old sister picked up the phone. Brenda is on the line crying and is just... In an awful state. She tells her sister that a white man picked her up and that she believes that she's in Virginia. Her sister, who's only seven at the time, just didn't quite understand what was being said here. To her, it sounded almost normal, like Brenda got picked up by a white man. He must be taking her home. But before her sister can do anything, like pass the phone to an adult, Brenda hung up abruptly. Shortly after, Brenda called back again, and this time her stepfather was waiting, and he picked up the phone and just pleaded with Brenda to ask, Tell him where was she so that way he can pick her up himself and bring her home. Brenda repeated the same story that she told her sister that a white man picked her up and that she believed she was in Virginia, almost as if it was rehearsed. But then she added something else. She asked cryptically. Did my mother see me? When Brenda hung up from that call, that was the last time that her family would hear from her again. That next morning, just shy of 6 a.m., her body was found on the side of Route 50, and a hitchhiker who was walking that route found her. She was shoeless like the other girls, and she was sexually assaulted and strangled to death. She was strangled with a scarf that was still around her neck when she was found. Brenda's case, though, tells us something. First thing, police realized that what she told her family was very rehearsed and was most likely the opposite of the truth. She told police a white man took her. Police took this to believe that it was a black male who told her this. And this is backed up by the fact that Darlene was last seen in a black car that had a black male driver. So, police were certain that they were looking for a black man. Another interesting thing that this call revealed was that Brenda kept saying, I think I'm in Virginia, which Told police that she was most likely not too far from where she was abducted. Because why would the killer want her to reveal their approximate location? It doesn't make any sense. Police believe that the information that Brenda fed to her family, they believe that she was coerced into saying that by her murderer, and that it was his way of trying to get the police off of their tracks. For the rest of the summer, the neighborhood was quiet. Despite the fact that the summer closed without any movement in the case, or without any new victims, the neighborhood was still absolutely terrified. Little black girls and their mothers were just worried that they would be next. And the police at this point, was not sharing information about the case because it was still an open investigation. They were, however, taking it more seriously because now because now there are three girls missing. And on top of that, they knew at this point they were looking for DC's first serial killer. Also on these streets was the press, who witnesses noted that if they needed information, the press was more willing to talk to them than the police, which is always interesting. And it's usually the truth because usually the press is just trying to get the story while the police is trying to keep the sanctity of the case safe. So that makes sense. But everything was quiet. That is until October 1st, when 11 year old Nenomosia Yates was heading to her local supermarket when she was suddenly snatched from the streets. That night. Only three hours later, her body was found at the side of Pennsylvania Avenue in Maryland. So still very close to where the other murders took place. Her body was in the same state as the other girls. She was strangled and sexually assaulted and her shoes were off. Brenda Denise Wordard was only 18 years old when she was on her way home from having dinner at a classmate's house. It was November 15th, and she was supposed to take a bus in Baltimore, Maryland home. But she never made it home that day. Only six hours later, her body was found discarded on the side of the road in Baltimore with multiple stab wounds and signs of strangulation. This time, though, her shoes were on. So unlike the other girls, she still had her shoes on. And unlike the other girls, whoever left her there placed a jacket over her torso to cover her in the jacket. Police found this note, and I'm going to read it straight forward. From it. This is tantamount to my insensitivity to people, especially women. I will admit the others when you catch me if you can. Freeway Phantom. Police did an analysis on this handwriting and found that it was written by Brenda. And interesting enough, when she written the note, she wasn't under stress. They could tell by her handwriting that she was relaxed. This made police believe that maybe she knew her killer. And this makes sense because remember, Darlenia was seen in the car of her abductor, possibly hinting that she may have knew the man who most likely offered her a ride home that night. So the fact that Brenda's handwriting wasn't a sign of someone in distress, just made police wonder if maybe they were looking for someone who was well known in the neighborhood, someone that the girls would have seen over and over again. 17 year old Diane Denise Williams was the last victim of the freeway phantom. She as her sister describes her had a star personality. Her sister believed that one day, she would be seen on stage either singing or acting. She was beautiful. And at the age of 17, she had her first boyfriend. And it was on this night that she was going home from, from hanging out with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend diligently watched her board her bus home. But she never made it to her house that night. Only a few hours later, her strangled body was found just alongside I-295 South. Her shoes were off of her feet, but there were absolutely no signs of sexual assault, which made her case much different than the rest. All the other girls whose bodies were able to be tested for had signs of sexual assault. Now they did find evidence that Diane had intercourse that night. But because she was hanging out with her boyfriend, police were confident that it belonged to her boyfriend, the evidence that is. However, the boyfriend claims that they did not have intercourse that night. But he could have claimed this for many reasons. It could be because they didn't want the parents to know. Maybe he just didn't trust the police There's so many reasons why someone would lie about that. Somehow the police had six murdered girls on their hands, but they did not have a clear suspect. At the time, they were pulling anybody who may have had a reason, pretty much any black male that they can find essentially off the streets to question them. And so they casted a very wide net without a lot of rhyme or reason. And from this wide net, police had narrowed it down to three suspects. The first suspect is the Green Vega gang. They were a gang of men who would abduct women off the streets and assault them and then release them. So their crime did not fit the characteristics of the freeway phantom who would strangle his victims. Police also found that that the vehicle used in these abductions were actually not made at the time of the first few murders. And this immediately told police that it was not this gang who was known to use a green Vega, which is a type of vehicle. And this green Vega was not in production at the start of the freeway phantom's reign. So because of this, The Green Vega gang is automatically not assumed to be the freeway phantom by most people who uh, study this case. The next suspects are Edward Sullivan and Thomas Simmons. They are two ex-cops who was arrested for the rape and murder of 14-year-old Angela Barnes. Originally, they actually thought Angela Barnes was a victim of the freeway phantom, but police was able to rule her out due to, I'm assuming, forensic evidence. This leaves our last suspect and the one who I believe is our most likely culprit. And that is Robert Askins. Robert Askins has a long history of assaulting, murdering, and terrorizing women specifically sex workers he actually admitted to police that he is a woman hater there was even an incident at one point where he poisoned a group of sex workers resulting in the death of one of them and so in 1938 a judge actually ruled him to be criminally insane that's how horrendous his crimes were. I don't want to get into the awful gritty details, but let me tell you, he left a string of bodies in pain and and heartbreak behind him, no matter where he went. Unfortunately, despite this, he was released five months after being committed to the hospital, where he promptly went and murdered his next victim, 42-year-old Laura Cook. And though he was sentenced to 20 years to life, this conviction was overturned in 1958. So he was back on the streets and back to his old ways. So when police caught wind of Askin's horrible past, they decide to search his home in 1978. But they found absolutely nothing. They didn't find the green fibers that were found on some of the bodies. I mean, they found some remnants of women's clothing, but nothing to implicate that a crime had taken place. They even dug up his property and didn't find any human remains, nothing. His entire living space was clean. But here's Here's the thing. Askins was extremely intelligent. He was a computer technician and he was known to help the police arrest sex workers. So he would actually go to the police, work as an informant to identify sex workers in the area and get them arrested. Because of this, he may have had more information that the general public did not have about how police operated. So if you already are a very smart man and you already have previous experience with the police and how they do things, you may know, don't keep everything at your house. So just because they didn't find it at his property doesn't automatically rule him out. Askins actually died in prison at the ripe age of 91. And he was in prison, get this, for two abduction and rapes in the D.C area. And these crimes took place in the mid 1970s, not too far after the Freeway Phantom was active. Throughout his life, Askins maintained innocence in regards to the Freeway Phantom's murders. He claimed, and this is a quote, I'm going to read this, he did not have the depravity of mind required to commit any of these crimes, which makes absolutely no sense, because it's on the record that he committed similar crimes to the point where he spent the rest of his natural life in prison. But unfortunately, there is nothing we can do. He died in 2010. And I'm not sure if we have his DNA, we probably could get familial DNA, it wouldn't matter, because all of the evidence that DC police had on the girl. So all the physical evidence, clothing, pictures, everything like that was destroyed. There was a confusion at the police department where they thought that maybe this case was already marked as closed, even though it was not. And so the fact that they don't have anything for this case, like any physical evidence, makes me think that maybe we will never know what happened here until someone comes forward or until maybe someone finds a confession written by someone who is now deceased. You probably know who I'm thinking about. I just, I just don't think we'll ever get closure from this case. A lot of these girls' siblings are still mourning their loss. Very tragic. And now the fact that the police destroyed all evidence, including personal photos, that they will never get back again is just heart-wrenching. And that is the story of the freeway phantom. My name is Sophia Talley, and this is True Crime and Knit. For more information, including show notes, please visit slash true crime. Stay safe, my friends.